I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hello there, Mark Kenny with Democracy Sausage. Don't you love how 2022 is rising to the challenge of the last two years, marked by bushfires and pestilence? 2022 has kept the viral theme humming along, but added biblical floods in Australia and a dangerous war in Europe. And it's only March. There are so many implications arising from Vladimir Putin's genocidal bloodlust in Ukraine, implications for the people of that country, for Russia, for Europe, NATO, the US, and for the rules and norms we assumed would vouchsafe the global order. And there's China sitting there too, pointedly refusing to condemn illegal aggression and blatant war crimes. Are we getting an unvarnished view of our powerful neighbour too, blithe about mass murder of innocents, for example? Joining me this week is the Dean of the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific, Professor Helen Sullivan. Welcome back, Helen. Thanks very much, Mark. Good to be here. And it's a first-time welcome to one of my journalistic heroes. She's a five-time Walkley Award winner, a former Moscow correspondent for the ABC, and these days is co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at UTS, Monica Attard. Welcome, Monica. Hi, Mark. How are you? Terrific, thanks. It's a very difficult time for the world, though, isn't it? Uh, difficult time here in Australia, as I say, with with those floods. They're not really a subject today. We're looking at the situation uh, in the region of the world from which you reported uh, so expertly for a period. When was it actually that you were the um, the Moscow correspondent for the ABC? Oh, I did two stints. So um, the first was uh, from December nineteen eighty nine to ninety five. A pretty pivotal which- time that. That was the incorp- that obviously incorporated the collapse of the Soviet Union mm. and the rise of Yeltsin's um, kind of uh, cowboy capitalism <laughs> and the first incursion into Chechnya. Uh, and then a second time from 2003 to 2005, which was the period of, um, of Chechen bloodlust on, on Moscow, which was a, a fairly traumatising time, I must say. Yeah. Was it a different Russia that you encountered uh, when you came back the second time? Were you struck by that, uh, the, the the extent of that transformation from that uh, immediate uh, post 
Soviet Union period to uh, to to the early two thousands. Well, not not really, because I even after my posting, I was married for Russians, so I, I, we were we were there every year, and right. I was writing about Russia. So I was in and out the whole time uh, until we went back for my husband's posting to Russia. The changes were profound, but you know they were no surprise. They, to me, they felt rather incremental and um, and and quite homegrown. So. It wasn't too much of a shock, but uh, I think on the second posting, what was a shock was that, you know, Moscow had been a relatively safe city and suddenly it became a very unsafe city uh, and there were Chechen terrorist attacks, you know, every second day, uh, which made it a very, very difficult city to live in. I wonder if the rest of the world, Helen, really appreciated that um, and we came, we became very conscious of terrorism uh, when it, uh, you know, happened in 2001 in in, uh, in in the US and in other places and of course we experienced uh, attacks on Australians in Bali and places like that but it's an interesting point that Monica raises about uh, Moscow becoming a very unsafe city in that period because I, I I mean I do remember it of course but I don't remember feeling it in the way that um, that we felt it uh, you know in, um, in in the case of I, I suppose uh, attacks on the west. Mm, sure, and 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 some of that I think, Mark, is to do with simply proximity, um, and and also uh, history. So I'm from the UK, you know, grew up with um, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and so you have a very different sense of what it means to feel safe, to be safe, how you go about your your daily life. Um, so I think there is something about places that have a, a history, if you like, of, of that kind of experience and, and their sensitivity to uh, how somewhere like Moscow uh, can change. I mean, I went to Moscow in 1978, way, way before um, wow. any of this was was on the horizon. So I, I think the, there is something about, yes, your sense of proximity, but also your sense of connection mm. to, to other places. And I'm guessing in, you know, in Australia, um, there, there, there was much less of a sense of connection because, you know, um, even in a globalized world, we still are very focused on our intimate, uh, neighbors and relations. Yeah. And there's, there was also that there's great sense of sort of otherness, a sort of residual sense of otherness about, about Russia anyway. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, as I say, residual in the sense of, um, of it having been on the other side of the so-called iron curtain mm. for so long and, and it being a quite different society. Monica, let's go to where we are now. I mean, how did it suddenly come to this? Can you give us a bit of a, a sense of the, the the background of how this suddenly emerges as this war and this really, I think it's reasonable to say, full-blown crisis for, for security at the moment? Yeah, globally. Um, mm. It's been a long time coming. I mean, I think this, in, it, for me, this is the result of 30 years of Russia having been Ignored by Washington in particular, but by and to a lesser extent the, uh, the the member states of the EU, but but certainly by Washington and in Putin's mind the humiliation that's come with that. You know he wanted Russia to be considered for membership of NATO back in two thousand. Nothing happened. They ignored him. In fact, not only ignored him, they said it's un- that's unlikely. To happen, he then began to question the reason for NATO's very existence. If it wasn't to attempt to impose some sort of peace in Europe, was his argument though? It was like he was saying, "Well, it's a, if it's a defence treaty, we should be part of it as well because we, That's right. yeah." But but in a sense, there's a difference because the, the West, the NATO countries, the traditional NATO countries, were seeing it as a 
uh, a defence treaty against Russia, effectively. Russia. That's exactly right. Uh, so it was sort of it was completely uh, sort of antithetical to to their understanding of why they had the you know the, the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation in the first place. That's exactly right, and and and, and antithetical to Russia's understanding of why the, the the treaty existed as well. And I think the only person actually who really understood where he was coming from was Merkel. Uh, it's made mm. me wonder in the last few days whether had Merkel still been uh, in office in in Germany, whether any of this would have come to pass. Whether it's a she very was interesting question. Possibly the only person capable of talking him off the ledge since that period when he expressed an interest in in membership of NATO, he's watched four waves of NATO's eastward expansion, uh, and. This, of course, after a promise from uh, George Bush at the time of the Soviet Union's collapse that 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 wouldn't happen, it would never happen. Yeah, this is from George Bush Senior. From George Bush Senior, yeah. and so he's watched that expansion and I think fumed, but sat on it. He reacted in two thousand and eight in Georgia when Georgia started to talk uh, more and more and more loudly about EU and NATO membership. He moved there, of course, as we know, in Abkhazia and Southern Ossetia, and that's kind of curbed Georgia's ambitions. You know, you don't hear Georgia talking about NATO anymore, and I doubt that they will be from here on in, given what they're now witnessing in Ukraine. And then along comes uh, 2013 in Ukraine, when a pro-Moscow president is uh, it comes under pressure for refusing to sign a trade agreement with the EU. He's overthrown. The West then calls this a democratic revolution. In fact, I even heard that parroted on an ABC television report uh, a couple of nights ago that in, 24, in 2013 Ukraine experienced a democratic revolution. In Russia's eyes, anything but democratic. You know, there's been... In fact, some very credible reporting by Western media, which shows that small, extreme groups in Kiev were being funded by the US. Uh, And, of course, there's those infamous leaked cables between the US Secretary of State and the US Ambassador to Ukraine at the time quibbling over who they would install as president. So for all, all of these elements of information coalesce in Putin's mind as evidence that the United States is seeking to make Ukraine a vassal of its own power. And if you're as paranoid about security as he is, you would look at that and feel less secure. 2014 comes along, his response is to annex Crimea. There's a lot of huff and puff in the West, but there's limited sanctions. And, in fact, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that he's managed to turn those sanctions to his advantage. He's actually used them to jumpstart local manufacturing and production the supermarket shelves were bare for six to eight months, but then, you know, he poured a lot of money into local production and that seemed to have worked and people kind of forgot about it. But in, in that time, between 2014, the annexation of Crimea and 2021, the fighting has continued in Donbass. It's been low-key other than, say, between 2015 and 2016 when it was pretty furious. But 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 since 2016, I mean, far, far from the genocide that Putin cites, n- nowhere near it, but it has worried the security apparatus in Russia. Uh, and I think that for Putin, he is the sort of leader who would keep that in his back pocket as one possible excuse stroke reason to make a move if and when he wanted to make a move. And that's precisely, I think, what's happened. 
Then, of course, in December of 2021, he puts a security agreement to Washington, which includes recognition of Russia's sovereignty in Ukraine, a commitment of neutrality for Ukraine in terms of NATO, and some peripheral requests about the use of or the the placement of, you know, interballistic missiles on European territory, and it's ignored. It's completely ignored by Washington. So his response is, well, if you ignore me, I'm just going to put the troops on the border because I'm feeling threatened. Yeah. And, this is, yeah, and so that is the lead up to it. Sorry to interrupt you, but it doesn't even have to be reasonable. It just has to be real. Like it, it just, you, you need to understand how he and they, how the Russians are perceiving Western moves and Western, uh, you know, uh, language. And that's the important fact here, really. And we could see that for a long time. That it's increasingly anxious. I, mean, I was listening to Michael Costello, former DFAT head and uh, was chief of staff to Kim Beasley uh, for some time. He was on Radio National recently and he was making the point that when he was um, uh, you know, one of his guiding principles was uh, a dictum from uh, Winston Churchill about diplomacy, which was you always understand, always put yourself in the shoes of the other person. It feels like the West hasn't been inclined to view this, Helen, at all from uh, the point of view of, of Putin, simply because the West feels that it's right and therefore it doesn't need to worry about what someone else thinks. Yeah, and and you know, as a as a historian, um, I mean, firstly, it's wonderful to hear you know the Monica's expertise and uh, you know how much we need that kind of expertise at the moment and in a environment where you know things are being said on the basis of you know very little um, evidence and expertise. But um, I I think there you know there there is a, a long history of of people arguing with with um, you know quite considerable evidence that. Um, you know, the West has, has not been terribly good at, at seeing the world through anybody else's eyes. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Fukuyama's The End of History was a, you know, a really pivotal moment mm-hmm. of, um, I think, hubris in the West of just assuming that, you know, democracy would prevail and... There was this overweening logic to it, therefore we'd won, therefore yeah. it was over and... As as was the case, I mean, we 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 hear a lot of historical sort of um, analogies made and 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 shot down as well by people who point out, you know, critical differences. Mm. But of course, there are differences. There are always differences. There are different situations at a different time. But some of the lessons can be uh, can be relearned, or, or or lessons from the past can be looked at again. And you know, we think about the humiliation of Germany after World War One. It saw itself as a you know a, a significant power, a global power, and 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 is humiliated, and the way that feeds uh, domestic politics in Germany, mm. and and we see the results of that. So there's that humiliation of the Soviet Union that that uh, that, that Monica is talking about, the collapse of this global superpower without really a shot being fired, and uh, and and that's a that's a deeply troubling thing. So it's not necessarily communist nostalgia it's respect nostalgia you know yeah and it's and it's also i think one of the things that has really struck me and it's not just about this crisis but you know the, the developments that we we've seen since you know the the early uh, 2010s is is the way in which the the key actors you know you 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 get a collection of key actors who have particular dispositions and again picking up on monica's point you know the removal of other key actors like merkel who could act mm. as some kind of uh, bulwark of of rationality and science it, one of the things that this is demonstrating is the 
the power of agency and key actors to really make a huge difference because, you know, this is about Putin. It's, and yes, Putin's idea of Russia, but what we are seeing is constantly a conversation between what are essentially a group of very senior men who lead Mm -hmm. very big countries. And who have very big eggshell egos. Yes, and who seem to not necessarily be connected to wherever they are. Um, This isn't just about Russia, but don't necessarily seem to be connected to what's actually going on in their own countries, which I think is is a huge part of the problem and is why, um, you know, actually globally, this is very, very troubling. Um, You know, it's not just about Europe. This is about what might happen globally. Can I just add something there as well, just picking up on what you said, Helen, and that is, you know, this this really does have nothing to do with communism, which mm. is, a, of, of course, a popular theme of discussions. I can't tell you the number of times I've been asked, you know, does Putin want to get the USSR back together again? And I, I mean, I almost felt fall off my chair laughing because, I mean, <laughs> one, they often trot out the line that Putin uttered, I think it was 2016, or might, might have been earlier, actually, I can't remember the, the year when he was asked about the the, the uh, reinstallation or reinvention of the Soviet Union. And he said that, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 21st century, blah, 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 blah. But then he did, in the second part, go on to say, but to think about its reinvention is folly. It's it's a ridiculous notion. But that's, of course, never 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 cited. But this it, it, Putin is not a communist. Putin is a nationalist. Mm. And from his perspective as well, I think what's playing into this this ramping up of anger towards the United States and paranoia about what the United States wants to ultimately achieve is that he's saying to himself in his head, we have done everything that we can to integrate with your capitalist world. You know, Russia has spent 30 years reinventing itself as a capitalist state. Um, and, and, you know, despite the hiccups in the first 10 years of gonzo capitalism, which were pretty ugly and deathly for a lot of people, uh, despite the corruption that has come with the last 20 years, which has ramped up, and the difficulties in outlook between Russians and Westerners, they are integrated into a capitalist economic system. And they see that as something that they deserve to be acknowledged for, in a sense, but yet they feel as though the world is punishing them for having been reasonably successful at that as well. It's a, such a complex psychological state of mind that they now find themselves in or that, and, that, and that he has fostered through fairly base propaganda. I mean, the propaganda that you see on Russian television at the moment is really all just about how the people of the Donbass have been ignored. So the line that's been parroted by the Russian ambassador in the United Nations Security Council. This is another historical um, sort of parallel, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you know, Hitler went on about the Sudeten Germans um, yep. before the annexation of, of Czechoslovakia. It was a pretext for what, what came next. It was thin then, it's thin now. Absolutely. Absolutely thin. Yeah. Certainly in terms of his, his claims of genocide, for example, uh, ridiculous. Do the Russian people believe it? Oh, they Look, I, th- I think when you talk about the Russian people, we have to be very, very careful of who we're talking about. So, you know, I think outside of the urban centres where the education levels are a little bit lower and where the only access to media tends to be state media, yes, they do believe it. But in the city, in the urban areas, um, amongst the educated classes, absolutely not. They do not believe it. Can I just read you 
a text that I got from a friend last night. Can I, can I hold you there? What I might do is just take a quick break at this point and we'll come back and we'll go straight to that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, just before the break, uh, Monica was about to read a text from a Russian friend. Away you go, Monica. Okay, so what he said was he's completely insane. He's fooled by his perverted logic and managed to fool half the nation. Who would think we would ever get here? He's being stopped by courageous Russians who protest across the nation in face of intimidation and brutality from his police and secret service. Today's build came out with a full-page article in Russian with words of support to all of those who've got the guts in Russia to stand up to this guy. And I know how important vocal support is when Russians are being associated with tyranny and menace. There is a very, very large number of people. I hesitate to put a percentage figure on it, but, you know, if I had to, if you had a gun to my head, I would say 30 to 40% of the population that, that are entirely opposed to what he's doing in Ukraine. On top of this, of course, there are the familial bonds between Russians and Ukrainians. I did a quick count on my on the night that this occurred on February 24th. Of all of my Russian friends, and there are dozens of them, perhaps only two or three do not have Ukrainian blood. I mean, the bonds are very, very strong. People are feeling this at every level. And, you know, for people who are my age at the moment and a little bit younger, who were perhaps 20, 25 when the Soviet Union collapsed, they have now developed into a Western business sense. They have been reasonably successful. And what they're saying to me is I am looking at 30 years of progress just go up in flames. Yeah, it's a very good point. And, of course, on top of that, including it, but on top of that 30 or 40%, say, whatever the number is, it's impossible to know exactly, Mm. will be people who have come under great pressure now as a result of these sanctions and what it does to the economy, Helen. I mean, mm. it's, 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 one imagines that uh, these sanctions are, are more, I mean, they started off with a lot of people saying they won't have any effect and then they've got ratcheted up and ratcheted up. There is a level of concert now uh, from the West and the way this is being done that does look like it's going to apply very significant pressure and damage on the on the Russian economy. And it's an economy we should remember that's, essentially the same size as Australia's. Mm. Um, you know, so their, its ability to wage war over a long period of time, I mean, it, presumably it comes at the great, you know, at the, at the direct expense of the living standards of, of Russians. So 
between those two things, you, you'd imagine there, there is the potential for domestic pressure to uh, to change policy. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right, and I think we should all remember that wherever we are, we do all have some agency. Now, you know that might be very very constrained in in different societies, but you know we've seen there have been demonstrations, there will continue to be demonstrations in you know in the face of extraordinary response from the, the security services. So, you know, the consequences of this, outside of the, the awful military consequences that could arise, the economic consequences of this, we have no idea. Mm. You know, and that's not just about Russia. It is about Europe and it is about the... About the global the economy as well. And, and, and certainly countries like Germany now with the, the strong action that Germany has now taken. Again, it's an interesting point that, that both you and Monica raise about whether Merkel would have done things the way that Olaf Schulz is now doing them. But nonetheless, Germany has d suddenly decided to double its defence spending. It's uh, suspended the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline mm. certification process uh, from, from Russia. It's uh, supplying arms, EU supplying arms directly into Ukraine, as are many other countries. That's ramping up. But there's going to be some costs on on those economies from all of these things as well, and and it is a sh potentially a shock to the economy. Russia is an OPEC country. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, it's going to be a huge shock. Uh, and, but remember, it's not that long ago that we went through the global financial crisis. I know it didn't happen in Australia, but there are ways in which these things can be repaired. Mm. But I think we should not underestimate the, the the consequences of this for people's you know energy prices, living standards, employment. Aside from the whole humanitarian disaster that is unfolding in Ukraine, you know, where you have, was it half a million people at least that mm. have now, have now left at the ANU? We have colleagues who have families who are at the border trying to get out. I mean, mm. this is ve a very real experience for many, many of us and is one that, you know, that yes, the analysis is incredibly important about, you know, how did we get here? But we also have to remember that, you know, there are people in Ukraine at the moment who are without food, without water. And, and it's bloody freezing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Monica, the other development, of course, in the last 24 hours before we, we record this uh, discussion is, um, is is Putin sort of ratcheting things up in, in, in nuclear terms, um, mentioning that uh, putting nuclear uh, weapons on uh, some, some level of alert readiness. Uh, this has been described as dangerous rhetoric by the Americans, but there are fears that you know, there could be miscalculations here. An incoming missile, for example, could be mistaken for one that's nuclear, or, and and could that how you know how would that be responded to, and 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 various other ways in which this could escalate, particularly if Russia feels that it is um, at a point where it's going to be defeated. How dangerous do you see it as? Oh, very dangerous. I mean, a couple of things. One, I think we're only at the very beginning of this whole. War, I, d I still don't think, despite the incredible bravery of the Ukrainians in fighting back, I don't know how th they withstand a land assault on Kiev. Mm. Beggars believe that they would be able to withstand what he may throw at them there. So the assumption that, you know, Russia will lose, I think the bigger issue on the world stage in terms of he, whether he does anything, you know, ridiculously precipitous in, in, in relation to his nuclear weapons is the humiliation that he continues to feel. Like yeah. it, so so that he's, he's obviously lost the, the global propaganda war, as he should. He's now sitting back watching military equipment come into Ukraine, we assume, at least have been promised, and so let's assume that, that a way is found for that uh, hardware to get in. 
so the humiliation, the personal humiliation and the dangers that he sees as flowing from that humiliation at home are ratcheting up. There's nothing more dangerous than a humiliated Putin, as we've seen. Than a humiliated leader of a former world power that feels humiliated that happens to own the most nuclear warheads of any country on earth. Exactly. So it is, it is, really, it is very, very dangerous and very, very frightening. One of the things that's never been clear to me is what victory would look like for Putin, because at the moment we're talking about humiliation and and that sense of, you know, how things are, are not panning out perhaps the way that he thought. But do you think there was ever a sense that he he had a, an an end game in mind? No, I, I wish I could answer that question. I mean, I think that, that's the that's what's really befuddling. I mean, I, I guess the only way to answer that question is to look at the two possible end case scenarios, and neither of them are great, and neither of them based on anything other than speculation. But on one scenario, you know, he takes Ukraine and together with the influence that he currently has over Belarus next door, um, his cowering of Georgia from the war in 2008, um, add to that the kind of economic and political sway that he has in some of the stand countries, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, that he cobbles together a new nationalist-styled Union stroke organization says, you know, you're, you can, you can deal with the economic mayhem that your sanctions will cause as a secondary result of, of them being imposed. He relies on trade with China rather than Europe and with even this new, new Putin crafted bipolar world. The other scenario is, is really much more localised, that this really is just a reaction to the humiliation that he says has been hurled at Russia you know, that in his mind, uh, he justifies that, obviously, as we said before, because you know, Russia in his mind has been at the forefront of these and he puts Ukraine out of business as a sovereign state, carves it up and, you know, continues to exert other forms of political and economic pressure on neighbours around who might not be as, you know, frightened of him as as Georgia is at the moment. So I, I don't know what the end game is. I, I think we're still at that stage where, because China is being so secretive, obviously for obvious reasons about it as well, we don't really know what the nature of that relationship is. To what extent it, it, China is, is supporting? Is, is there any parallel with the non-aggression pact between Germany and the Soviet Union? Uh, obviously not in specific detail, but. We do have a degree of either tacit or explicit enabling going on by China, the, the, the obvious number two in global power, perhaps the number one, depending on how you measure it, uh, certainly heading that way. It's an absolutely critical and, as you say, some sort of settlement uh, longer term for Russia may be in, in its, uh, its new bilateral relationship with Beijing. Perhaps, and certainly the optics, you know, would, would, would leave you thinking that, that is precisely where it's heading. But I don't know, Mark. I, I, I think it's still too early to say. And the implications for China of that are quite interesting as well because, because in, a, uh, in a market sense, China, of course, is deeply integrated with the rest of the world and uh, is, is an economic power on the rise. Its economy scheduled to be bigger than the US is in not so long, depending on how it's measured. So, yeah, I mean... The, that does Russia eventually tuck into that, and how does the world handle that? We haven't got much time left. I'm interested in this question, sort of taking a little bit further. This question that Helen raised though, about what his, what Putin's end game was, say, even if it's uh, changed now, was it possibly the establishment of a 
uh, more friendly government there. I mean, he's obviously, well, one imagines he wasn't looking to occupy a country the size of France with 44 million people and, and just sort of hold it in that sense. Uh, so presumably he would have been hoping to, as the term is so colourfully puts it, decapitate the, the, the US aligned government as he sees it and install one that's more friendly to Moscow and, and for it to be neutral is, isn't in a way therefore a possible resolution of this. And it seems hard to imagine within the context of bloody conflict as it's going on at the moment, but isn't a reasonable way that perhaps all sides could live with would be an independent Ukraine that is committed not to being a member of NATO that takes up it takes its independence and its proximity to Moscow seriously, but still is uh, has a relationship with the rest of the world. I know it's a it's sort of a, a hard to quantify question, but yeah, if you've got any it comment on really, it, it is really it is truly hard to quantify, Mark. But I think look, yes, ideally, uh, but none of that's going to happen. I mean, uh, Zelensky won't stand down. I don't believe. If they kill Zelensky, then it's game on as far as the West is concerned. You know, Zelensky has already started to talk about Ukraine's neutrality. Russia seems to be saying, yeah, but we, you know, they've they've been dismissive of that. They haven't Yeah, that's what we proposed before. <laughs> that's what we proposed before. So they, they they're not they're they're not going to take any notice of Zelensky saying that. The Ukrainian people, Zelensky is now, you know, has quite a, a he's you know 91% popularity across Ukraine, although I have to say that figure coming out of a poll taken in the last three days gives me pause to think. But, you know, let's put that to one side. No, we don't trust polls in this country either. <laughs> no, no, no. But, um, but you know, he's, he's, he's quite a figure and uh, whether Ukrainians would accept any other leader, particularly one who has Moscow's tick of approval after what Moscow has done, is, you know, that's a big call as well. Mm. Um, and, and also whether the West would accept any other a leader that has Moscow's tick of approval. It's just such a shame that it was allowed to get to this because, you know, NATO sort of encroaching westward, as you say, that that undertaking given in 1991 that it wouldn't do so and that constant gobbling up of those former states. I was, as I was writing the other day that in 2008, the list of new members in that year alone, I think it was 2009, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Albania, Croatia. I mean, it... it uh, no, nothing to worry about there. Yeah. That's all good. That's all fine. Yeah, well, that was... It's one of the problems. And here we have Ukraine, right, you know, abutting the, the Russian border. And there was this sense of, oh, there won't be any ill will created by that or any distrust or any reaction. But, of course, mm. there has been. And... Uh, one of the things I think I've noticed about this debate as it's happened is that there's this very strong and very commendable sense of solidarity with Ukraine and on the part of some people at least, a complete unwillingness to consider any possibility of any Western uh, role in the deterioration of the situation to where it is now. That's exactly right. And the minute that you start to talk about those things... You're in a PISA or something. You're in a PISA. You're a Russian shill. And there's 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 no way that... People just are not... It's too hot at the moment. Yeah. People are not willing to listen to that. You know, perhaps in the next couple of weeks, next couple of months, that situation will change. But also the the kind of blanket coverage in Western media and Australian media, which takes... Which assumes a narrative that is essentially... An American narrative, 
means that their exposure to some of the broader issues is as narrow or non-existent as the exposure of Russians who who have nothing but state media there. Yesterday, I had two screens operating. I had CNN on one and I had Russia Today on the other. And I swear to God, I felt like I was on different planets when I watched each of them. And neither of them went to the real issues here of what's what's really at stake, uh, i.e. the the saving of these people who are now desperately trying to leave the country. They didn't look at the root causes of what has gone on and what the possible solutions were. They're both myopic in their own way. But I think that we should get away from thinking that what we're exposed to in terms of coverage is as, you know, as comprehensive as it might be, could be. I mean, yes. that's one of the, you know, I mean, not this, this has brought it into sharp relief, but of course, it's been going on for a while, the the extent to which, you know, you can have the news that, that you want. It's always available to you. It's one of the great problems, one of the great challenges in democracy, actually, mm. is this whole sort of segmentation of the media to the point where people are just sort of living within the, the sort of curated set of truths that they're happy with and not anyone else. I mean, you could you could almost say, Monica, that you could have two screens. I mean, back during the uh, the presidential election, you could have two screens, one with Fox News and one with CNN, and you thought you were yeah. in different worlds as well. So, I mean, the yeah. divisions are everywhere. We're going to have to uh, to wrap up there. Um, it's been an absolutely terrific chat and uh, I'm really, really glad that uh, we had you on, Monica, at last and Helen again. Always brilliant to have your contribution. So thank you both for your thoughts today. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. And we'll probably come back to you again, Monica, throughout this if that's uh, if that's possible because as you say, it looks like it's going to uh, continue for a while. Absolutely. Love to. And just quickly before we go, March 15, about a fortnight away from when we record this at the moment, uh, save the date because that's when the Australian Studies Institute will hold its uh, delayed 2021 Australia and the World Annual Lecture. This year it's going to be delivered by Craig Foster AM live at the National Press Club and uh, he's going to have plenty to say about Australia's refugee policy presumably and and a number of other things. It's a, it's a really landmark lecture series. We had uh, Pat Turner last year, Josh Frydenberg, the year before that and Gareth Evans for the first one. So it's really a um, prestigious uh, and important annual lecture and we look forward to, to hosting that in about a fortnight's time. That's it for Democracy Sausage this week. Talk to you again next week. Bye for now.